Thank you for remaining standing as we now turn to the Word of God and its preaching. Open your Bibles if you have them with you, and I hope you do, to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll pick up where we left off last time. I'll begin reading for context this morning at verse 1 of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Hear now the Word of God. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And now our text for this morning. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. The word of God for the people of God. God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your holy word. And we thank you for the hope of the gospel and the beauty of the saving knowledge of Christ. Help us now, we pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit to see and hear your word with understanding and to desire more and more to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us your glory. Show us Christ and increase our appetite for his righteousness and fill us with the joy of your salvation. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. 
Perhaps you've seen this slogan on a bumper sticker, or more likely these days in a meme. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. So what is this slogan really saying? Have you ever thought about it? Its intention, no doubt, is to counteract the stereotype that some folks have, which is sometimes true, that Christians somehow imagine that they are morally superior to others so, so that they can condemn others for lifestyle choices that violate biblical norms. So you could say that it is a way of admitting we're not so special, we're flawed, just like everybody else. It attempts to express humility while also suggesting that defining Christianity in terms of character and behavior of its adherents is a mistake. But as you think about it, does the slogan send other signals too? On the one hand, it appears to minimize the gift of God's forgiveness since it claims that Christians are just forgiven. On the other hand, it may imply that forgiveness is all that we need or want from God. With this view, with this in view, it could be argued that the, the uh, attending implication of the slogan is something like, since Christians are forgiven, the fact that we are so imperfect doesn't really bother us. It's no big deal. So then we find that a slogan meant to express humility also suggests complacency. And complacency is one of the following conditions that our text this morning is bringing our attention to. And as we consider the verses before us, I want us to first make sure that we are reading the text in its context, for it is inextricably linked to the previous verses. And then after doing that, I will begin the exposition of the text and conclude with some application. So pretty much a three-point sermon for you this morning. So first, the context. For the Apostle Paul, the gifts of forgiveness and a right standing with God through faith in Christ, it made him anything, anything but complacent. To be sure, Paul had abandoned the life of striving and achieving that characterized his life before Christ seized him on the road to Damascus. As a youth, Paul formerly known as Saul, had added to the advantages he was born with, those bestowed on him by lineage and the upbringing with a vigorous commitment to the law of Moses and a zealous persecution of the church and as a strenuous pursuit of righteousness before God and his people. Paul's own perspective and that of his Jewish contemporaries was that he had attained the goal of blamelessness, not, not sinlessness, but blamelessness, an, an acceptable blend of vigorous obedience and rigorous cleansing rituals that, that, as he once thought, would secure his status among the righteous and become those who could expect God's approval. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. Yet, the blinding flash of Christ's divine glory there on the Damascus road exposed the futility of, Saul, of Saul's self-serving striving. He showed him that his alleged gains 
were merely deficits, and his achievements in the flesh were mere rubbish. Up to that moment on the Damascus Road, Saul himself suffered from the same blindness that he later wrote about his Jewish brothers in Romans chapter 10, where we read, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right then and there, on the Damascus Road, the Lord of glory stopped Paul in his tracks and put an end to his zealous striving to establish his own righteousness. The gift of grace from the risen Lord Jesus destroyed and purged Saul's confidence in the flesh and freed him to rest in the assurance of God's favor in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture of God's grace and the glory of the gospel truth? And as I ponder Saul's conversion, I suspect that many of us need, desperately need, to embrace more fully the totality of what our conversion in Christ truly means. We need to have our confidence in the flesh utterly destroyed and place all of our confidence, every single bit of it, in the gospel and righteousness of Christ. So what was the effect of Paul's conversion? As he found himself no longer needing to strive after righteousness found in the law, he could now rest in a righteousness, righteousness that was not his own, an alien righteousness. But the surprising result of this knowledge of his conversion was that as it became to him a stimulant, not a sedative. That is to say, his passion to follow God's will and further God's glory was amplified even more than before. Paul was eternally grateful for the free gifts of, of a cleansed conscience and a record expunged of all guilt before the judge of heaven. He was utterly humbled by the kindness of God, which led him not to a state of complacency, but it rather fueled and equipped him for the work and the race that lay before him. The Spirit of God, having begun a good work in Paul, as in all believers, was sure to finish it until the day of Christ. These first tastes of grace only whet Paul's appetite for the whole feast of fellowship with his Savior that he describes as gaining Christ, being found in Christ, knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, and even being conformed to his death, if by any means he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The grace, the grace that seized Paul's heart set him on the course of a lifelong race. And this is the imagery that he evokes in our text this morning. Paul is pursuing Christ. And that is what every Christian is to be doing every day for the rest of our lives, pursuing Christ. And so now as we move to the primary text in view, beginning at verse 12, the question I pose to you this morning 
is, are you pursuing Christ? Are you pursuing Christ? Or have you become complacent in your Christian walk? When you read and hear the text that we just read, when you meditate upon the implications and meanings of this text in your life, are you tempted to think, well, that's just Paul. That's Paul, the super apostle. (coughs) He heard the voice of Jesus on the Damascus road and was struck blind. He's a super Christian. I could never be like that. Is that how you read that text? Well, if so... Paul begins to debunk that notion here in verse 12. He writes, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus is also laid hold of me. Paul here is acknowledging that he has not come to a point in his spiritual life where he can say, I have arrived. There's still much spiritual growth for him to realize in his Christian life. He is not already perfected, and neither are we. We can therefore identify with Paul. We can listen to him and heed these words. And so what are we to do? What are we to be about as Christians? The verb press on that Paul uses here means to run or to flee, to catch a person or a thing. And depending on the context, it can even mean persecute. It's a a strong word, an energetic word. And here the imagery is used of a sprinter running a race. I hope that's obvious to you. The idea is that he is running swiftly after something, like a runner pressing on to finish to the finish line. So picture in your minds, if you will, the runner lengthening his stride, sticking out his chest as he approaches the the finish line there and running with every drop of energy that he can possibly muster so that he can finish the race and win the race. This is Paul's all-out effort to pursue Christ. He understood that Christ Jesus had laid hold of him on the Damascus road and that he must press forward and lay hold of Christ every day of his life, indeed every moment of his life. Yet Paul knows he has not yet laid hold of it. And so he writes in verses 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see where he is in the race? He has these aspirational words, and I so wish that the Apostle Paul were right here this morning to share with us this authentic passion that he brings as he's writing to the Philippians. It's one thing to read it. Man, would it not be awesome to be able to hear him say it in the way he felt it. And so we see in these words here that this is Paul's singular passion to know Christ. He is forgetting the past with all of its failures and defeats, including his misdirected self-righteousness. And he's doing so with an all-absorbing effort. Paul is reaching to the finish line. And perhaps 
I hope most of you have from time to time seen those video clips of runners who have become overconfident in their victory in a foot race. And they ease up toward the end of the race only to be overcome by that diligent runner who just edges them out at the end. Maybe even doing a little showboating along the way. And that runner who presses forward, not giving up, running all the way to that tape, that's Paul. That's Paul running with all his might and faith all the way to the end. And yet Paul understands that he will never fully reach this goal in this lifetime. But nevertheless, he presses on toward the prize, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a prize. It's the free gift of God. It's not something, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a goal, but it's a prize. It's a gift from God. It's not something we have to earn in our own effort. And yet we are called to, to give it the effort, to, to pursue Christ in all things. Paul pictures himself as a runner pursuing the finish that accompanies the resurrection from the dead and being in the presence of Christ. Do you do that? Do you long to, to be in the presence of Christ? Do you long for the hope of heaven? I think it's hard to do that. I think there's something about this earthliness that makes it hard to wrap our minds around that prize. And yet we're to do so. And as we read more of God's word and as we soak it in and meditate upon Christ, little by little, we're able to understand that. Paul longs to hear from his Lord these words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so should we. This should be a motivating desire and longing for everyone gathered here this morning. We should regularly ponder the glory of our Lord, who He is, what He has done and is doing for us, and desire to know more of Him, anticipating the pleasure of His smiling face as He says to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. And Paul continues in verses 15 and 16, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Therefore, he begins. So we ask that question, what is the therefore there for? <clears throat> Paul now calls the Philippians to apply what he has just been teaching. The logical response to Paul's example of a single-minded pursuit of Christ is to follow in his footsteps. He shifts from describing his own goal of pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to exhorting the Philippians to adopt a similar posture. In essence, he is saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul includes himself in this command to make it clear that he does not stand above the Philippians, but rather shares their need for the mind of Christ that he is calling them to. It is the mindset through which everything else in life is to be evaluated. To think this way is to adopt Paul's single-minded pursuit of Christ, 
described that he has just given to us in verses 1 through 14. And it culminates in the resurrection of the body on the day of Christ. In all humility, but, but with dedicated faithfulness to his calling, Paul puts himself forward as an example of faithful application of someone who has the mind of Christ as he pursues Christ. And he says, those who think this way are mature. Your translation may read perfect. But Paul does not have sinless perfection in view, but rather spiritual maturity. As such, the thought is similar to that of Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. No longer children. So we see Paul calling believers to grow up together to mature manhood, to mature adulthood. We see the same idea in Colossians 1.28 where Paul states that the goal of his ministry is to present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. And though Paul has confessed, confessed in verse 12 that he hasn't yet attained spiritual perfection, he does acknowledge that he has attained a level of spiritual maturity. Paul recognizes that not everyone in Philippi shares the same level of spiritual maturity in the faith, and so he addresses them directly in the second half of his verse. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Paul assumes that there are some in Philippi who do not completely share this Christ-like mindset, which seems like a safe assumption in light of the rest of the letter. Such a difference in mindset is probably the root of the difficulties in Philippi and perhaps at the heart of the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche, which we'll see in chapter 4. To those who do not see things as the apostle does, Paul assumed, assures them that God will reveal even this to you. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of believers to give them a greater understanding and application of the truth of the gospel. This is an assurance of their sanctification. Paul doesn't specify here the means that God will use to aid in their sanctification, which leaves open a variety of possibilities. God may choose to directly reveal things to a person, but it is more likely that he will use the means of grace, the preaching of his word, prayer, the words of other believers. Indeed, God, indeed, Paul likely expects that this very letter that he has written to the Philippian church will be used of God to accomplish their spiritual maturity, to further them in the race that has been set before them. That which he has begun, he will surely complete. And it is easy for us as believers to profess to have the mind of Christ, but simultaneously fail to apply the implications of it to specific situations in our lives. And that is where the Holy Ghost uses God's Word and the fellowship within the body of Christ, the church, founded in the gospel, to reveal those areas and bring correction where necessary. So then in verse 16, Paul is in effect saying to the spiritually mature, don't become distracted by those 
who do not yet have the mind of Christ. Stay the course. Stay the course. He says, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, we are to march in orderly formation as good soldiers of Christ. There's a, a military meaning in the words that Paul uses to intentionally evoke that imagery for the Philippians. Paul uses this same verb in Galatians 5.25 when he urges, let us also walk in the Spirit. The military imagery of this verb complements the athletic imagery Paul has been using and serves to remind us of the corporate nature of running the race to receive the prize. Thus, Paul is calling the Philippians to join together with him, keeping in step with what we have already attained. So here in verse 16, Paul is calling the Philippians to lay hold, firm hold to the level of spiritual maturity that they have attained and to do so by imitating Paul's single-minded pursuit of Christ and to not turn away either to the pursuit of righteousness found in the law or by licentious living. One danger that accompanies one danger that accompanies a measure of spiritual maturity is the temptation to constantly compare yourself favorably to those who are not quite as far along in their walk with God. This is pride. And in doing so, we actually fall prey to the danger of finding confidence in the things of the flesh, which is the very error that Paul has rebuked earlier in this chapter. Another danger that can accompany the pursuit of spiritual maturity is the temptation to isolate ourselves from the community of faith, as if we can become more mature without the local church than with it. But God intends for us to grow together in spiritual maturity as we spur one another on to love and good deeds and to pursue Christ wholeheartedly and single-mindedly in all humility. And so as we turn now to application, the question remains, are you pursuing Christ? Where are you in your Christian walk with respect to this call to pursue Christ? Do you greatly desire the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Or have you become complacent and presumptuous? Have you marginalized the role of Christ in your life, of faith in your life? Do you live your life in the context of the relations with others in light of this pursuit of Christ? Do you read the headlines with the knowledge of your understanding of who you are in Christ and the sovereignty of our powerful God and his His perfect wisdom and superintendence and governing of all his children. It's a difficult thing to do, to keep in mind, to lay hold of Christ and to pursue him in everything that we say and do and think. And there's a great temptation in the middle of that to become presumptuous and complacent in our faith. And I think that many, perhaps most or even all of us, have a streak of complacency that we need to put off, and we need to get back in the race, so to speak. We're far too happy remaining 
spiritual babes. But Paul writes these words to the Corinthian church. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. This is part of getting back into the race. We need to pursue spiritual maturity and put away childish things and desire to know as we are known. The way we do this is in pursuing Christ. But a good question is, how do we do that? What does that entail? We have have a great need to know more fully and more completely the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we are supposed to love Jesus. We can give our Sunday school answers, but how can we love whom we don't know? So we need to rectify that. And how do we do that? We need to spend more time in the Word and especially in the Gospels and to meditate upon what is revealed of our Lord and Savior's character and His wisdom, the wisdom of His teaching. But we also need to grow in our doctrine of God. Most likely, most, I would say every one of us, have too low a view of God and who He is and how glorious and powerful He is. We need to be struck with just broken humility and fear before the holiness of our God. We would do well to study the doctrine of God. We need to saturate ourselves with His revelation, His Word, the whole counsel of Scripture. And when we find that we fall short in some way, when we find that we are learning just a little bit more about the Lord our God. We need, we need to repent. We need to have our minds renewed as we consume the Word of God. <coughs> we need to search the Word for what is prescriptive and descriptive of the Christian life. We need to believe the gospel, trust Christ, and pray for renewed strength to finish the race well. We need to live every moment of life with a grateful embrace of the truth of the gospel. So let me conclude with an example of what it means by looking at some of what is commanded in the Word and what is forbidden in Scripture, along with some of the things we are to meditate upon and some of the promises of God that we are to cling to. I think this is probably the primary way in which we pursue Christ. So what is commanded? Pursuing His Word and joy in the Lord. That's what's commanded. That's right. We are commanded to desire the Word and to pursue joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider these scriptures. We're going to read quite a few scriptures. So hang tight. I'll give you the references if you're interested. They're all going to be familiar. 
first one, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, that's who we are, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Do you want to be mature in Christ and run the race that is set before you? Then cultivate a desire for the word, the pure milk of the word. For you, this may mean fewer how-to books and more, much more scripture. And read the word as if you are hungry and malnourished. Savor each thought, exhortation, precept, and even the rebukes. As the prophet Jeremiah wrote, your word, wor words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Eat the word of God. Speaking of joy, hear these commands from the word. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight, Psalm 37, 4. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, Psalm 32, 11. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth, Psalm 67, 4. Psalm 100, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Singing. I don't know why this morning, but man, this was some powerful text in the hymns that we have been singing this morning. And I would commend them to you as another way to pursue Christ. You know, if you have your copy of the Matins Liturgy, praise my soul, the King of Heaven. This is not only a song to be sung, but it is beautiful poetry informed by the word of God and, and read it and meditate upon it and grow and pursue Christ in your singing. We're to, we're to sing, we're to exhort one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. This is one of the means the Lord has given to us. But continuing on, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. In Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and you know how to finish it, and weep with those who weep. So not only is joy commanded, but so is weeping. Have you wept this week with your brothers and sisters who have lost loved ones recently? Have you felt their pain and been filled with compassion for the difficulty and emotional ache of their loss? Have you prayed for their comfort? And I hope that you have. And if so, then you are pursuing Christ in this. And therefore, press on and do so more and more. 
But, but know that contentment is also commanded. Hebrews 13, 5, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we all know that Paul reminds Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. But earnest, heartfelt love is commanded. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 1.22 Hope is commanded. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Psalm 42.5 Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.13 Fear. Fear of the Lord is commanded. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. We are to fear the Lord and pursue Christ in doing so. Kind affections, brotherly love, deference and zeal are commanded. Romans 12, 10, and 11. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Take that one, no, two verses there from Romans 12 and apply them to your life and see if it doesn't make a great deal of difference in your pursuit of Christ and in your sanctification. And peace... And gratitude are also commanded. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called into one body and what? And be thankful. And so as you study and meditate upon what God has commanded to those who belong to Him and give yourself to those commands you are pursuing Christ and the Spirit will bring you into a greater maturity in Him. But what about those forbidden things? And we need to look no further than Exodus 20. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. You know these. And all these forbidden things need to find application in our lives as we pursue Christ. And, with, and by the way, the application of these very short and simple forbidden things is much broader and deeper than we, they might have first appear to be. And so let me wholeheartedly, without reservation, direct you to the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 134 and following, for contemplation and growing in your understanding of these commands. And speaking of contemplation, there are things that we are to meditate upon and consider in our minds. And one of my favorite verses is found in the next chapter of Philippians, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Why would Paul write this to the Philippians? How is this helpful in our Christian lives? Perhaps you've heard the, the comparison, the illustration of, you know, counterfeiters, right? Those who, 
you know, those who take money have to become very familiar with what real money looks like so that they readily identify the counterfeit money. Likewise, we need to know what is true, what is lovely, what is pure, what is just. Just is under attack. Justice is under attack these days. We need to know and own and live and breathe a justice that is defined by the word of God. The very moment you find that your mind and heart begin to focus on the ugly or complain or dwell on the downside of your circumstances, meditate and think on these things that Paul exhorts us to. And in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, Paul is likewise writing something helpful. If then you were raised with Christ, do you belong to him? Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. This is a huge perspective corrective. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In light of this truth, what on earth, and I mean that literally, what on earth could possibly steal your joy in Christ? What is there to hinder your pursuing Christ? And finally, as you set your hand to the plow without looking back, as you engage the race to walk in and by the Spirit of God, remember to cling to His promises. Never forget the promises of God. John 6, 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Christ is your sustenance for the race. And if Christ is your sustenance, then you can pursue him without growing faint or weary in your soul. You are well fed in Christ. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. There it is right there. The truth and promise that you need to pursue Christ more vigorously. The Lord your God is at your side and there is nothing to fear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We all face temptations in life, but there are no excuses. God is faithful. Even in temptation, he will make a way to flee and to escape. Trust in the Lord. And finally, 1 Peter 5 and 6 and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He cares for you individually. He cares for you corporately. He cares for you with a tender care that goes far beyond the care of a parent for his child. He cares for you perfectly. And so do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with worry? Humble yourself and give it to God because he cares for you. People of God, be bold in your pursuit of Christ. His grace is sufficient. His love 
is perfect. His power is unlimited. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need as we pursue Christ to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the revelation of your holy word. Help us, we pray, to to forget those things which are behind and to reach forward to those things which are ahead and press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Give us a greater desire to know the Lord and, and help us and keep us from growing weary as we pursue him in faith and by your strength. This we ask for the glory of our God for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.